Shalom. Shalom. We're continuing our final series of messages within the whole series of the book of Ephesians. And I'm speaking on the theme of spiritual warfare. And today I've titled the message, The Armor of God. Could you repeat after me? The Armor of God. We begin this series with verse 10 in chapter 6 of Ephesians with Paul's words, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. The Lord, when He gives us a word through His servants, prophets or apostles, He does not give us a word or command which cannot be abided by. In other words, when he says, do this, it is because it can be done. It is because there is resource available for us to operate that way. He will not tell us to do something which is impossible for us to do. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, because the Lord is strong and he's powerful. And he has granted us his Holy Spirit who actually dwells inside of us. We have all that is of power available for us Christians. We are weak in the flesh. Just as a typical human being just trying to struggle through life, it is very difficult to tap into strength. And as I get older and my physical body begins to wear down more and more, I find it even more difficult. But then I am not relying upon my Physicality. I'm not relying upon my fleshly power, nor fleshly wisdom. I'm relying upon the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. That much more we must rely upon God. The whole thing about Christianity is not us coming to that point of maturity where we can do things apart from God, but becoming even more humble like little children who are completely and utterly dependent upon their parents to become more dependent, to tap into more of the power that is other than I. That's what Christian life is about. And we have that power in the Holy Spirit. And besides, Christ has done everything for us. He's won the battle for us. And He's saying, as I am the victor, you are as well victor in me. So He starts off, Apostle Paul starts off with this amazing word of hope of finding victory and power and strength in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Then he gets into the more of the nitty-gritty of the reality that we are facing today. In verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against human beings, not even against human structures, not even against the world per se, but we are fighting against the world that is behind the world that we see here. Have you found yourself in tension with other people or struggling with some kind of structure, some tradition, some kind of mindsets? And we think it's just the thing of the flesh, things of physical and the visible and the material. And Paul is clearly saying, no. 
There is the power of the enemy headed by Satan and the hordes of demons, the hierarchy of the enemies. These terms that Apostle Paul lists here, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's not talking about just the ground level. He's not talking about little de demons here and there. He's talking about hierarchical demons who are in control over our communities, our societies, even over our nation and the whole earth. If you study spiritual warfare and you really try to master what is known as demonology or angelology, then you will learn that the demons are structured kind of like the most sophisticated military force. I mean, take the very best of the military force of the United States, Russia, and China put together. And uh, Satan's force and the hierarchy is even much more powerfully structured. That's what we are going up against. But having said that, what Paul is about to suggest to us is very interesting. He is not saying that we go against that, charging full force, assaulting the principalities and powers. He's not saying that. As a matter of fact, if we look at what he's saying in verse 11, 13, and 14, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, he says. Armor of God is primarily defensive gear that we must put on. And he says, take your stance because you already have the victory in Christ. And all you have to do is defend your right, hold the ground. What Christ has gained for you, don't lose that into the hands of the enemy. But he did not mean by this, assault the power and the principalities. A few decades ago, this whole theme of spiritual warfare, as so-called the strategic level, or high level, or some even have used terms like cosmic level, and many Christians foolishly thought that we can just make an assault. Use the warfare that is done at the ground level and thinking that we can, with that, refute the enemy. And you know what? So many people have paid heavy tolls as a result of that. Their family got devastated. Their, their relationship got messed up. Their spirituality shattered. Why? Because we had the audacity to think that we were given that kind of authority to climb up the ladder and deal with the principalities and powers at that level. No, we are not. This is reserved for only those persons. And by the way, it can't be individuals. Those groups who clearly have received the call and commission of the Lord for this, and they cannot do it on their own. They must mobilize the body of Christ for this. Until the body of Christ comes to an agreement about this, 
we don't have the force to bring down the hierarchical enemies. But what we have the full authority is to guard what is given to us. So when the enemy penetrates into our midst, we can stand and take guard. And all the privileges that Christ has given us, we can own that. For example, I can protect my family from the invasion of the enemy. Whatever force it may be, it may be the principality and power of the highest realm. Sending its demonic horse to come and attack my family. I have the power to stand against that, to defend my family. And if I'm a pastor of a local church, I have the power to defend my local church. If I'm a, uh, in charge of a community of people, I have the power to do that. I have the authority. But I don't have the jurisdiction to go beyond that. So let's get that very clear. These are defensive weapons. Even the sword that we are seeing, that's the only offensive weapon, but it is primarily defensive weapon here. And I'll explain to you as to why. So Paul says, put on the full armor of God and stand firm. And guard all that Christ has gained for us. In other words, we are not to be antsy and to be anxious about getting something that doesn't belong to us. We're simply to hold on to what we have in Christ and we have plenty so that the enemy does not come and steal, destroy, and to deceive us. So today we come to our text here in verses 14 through 17. Shall we read this out loud together? Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Apostle Paul is talking about the specifics of the armor. Armor of God. This is a metaphor, of course. I hope you don't think that you're supposed to kind of purchase some kind of a specialized armor, like what you see in the comic series nowadays with action heroes, you know, wearing certain armors like the Iron Man. We're not talking about that. Not even symbolically putting on certain type of clothes with a design like that. And today, people put tattoos all over, thinking that that's going to make them invincible. No, nothing like that. This, this is a metaphor. But let's look at the metaphor and see why this is so true and so relevant to us in our today's context. We begin with verse 14. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Obviously, Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the armor of God here, he was reminded of the Roman soldiers. And perhaps he, being in Rome, chained to a Roman guard. Maybe he took a very close look at this Roman guard and his, his outfit. And he saw the military constantly active in Rome. So he was very familiar 
with what was happening. And the Romans had a way of putting on their belt, not primarily for ornament's sake, like today, you know, people like to go around, especially in Texas, they love to have big bucklers like this, you know. And they go like that and you know, show. <laughs> and this is like insignia of who you are, how tough you are. You know? And of course, their boots and so forth. Right? But even the Romans had that. They had like strips of ornaments, you know, guarding their groin area. And scholars to this day, they cannot see any function in that because it doesn't protect their groin. It's ornaments. Maybe they were trying to show this was the the Italian way <laughs> or, or the Roman way of uh, showing that they are mighty and they are grandiose. But the belt was not primarily for ornament's sake. It's not a badge of honor. It's for functional reason. Why? Because it was the belt which held up all the armors, including the sheath for the sword. It was all attached to the belt. And so you have the pants held up by the belt. You had a loose tunic, which was, you know, stuck into the belt. You had a chest gear that was attached to the belt. Or you're going to have a very mobile type of chest gear, which is not good, especially when you're engaged in a serious battle. So all the gears are there. Have you ever taken a close look at policemen? And the belt that they will? When was the last time you took very close look at policemen, especially like New York cops? I see movies where you know they wear this and they got so many gizmos here. You know, they got spray here, they got you know a baton here, they got they got stuff, walkie-talkie here, everything like it's heavy stuff that they're wearing. They got everything they needed, and so all they have to do is just they just buckle that up and they're ready to go. And that's what Apostle Paul is saying, all the gear that's there, all that will mobilize you, you know, girding up your loins, so to speak, it'll be there, and you're ready to go into the battle. And Paul says, what is that belt? What is that which integrates everything, brings it all together so you're ready to go out into the battle? It's truth, he says. See, Jesus said the devil comes to lie and deceive, steal and kill. He's the devil. He's the father of all lies. Today, we are so attracted to information, revelation, and all kinds of revelations and informations, data are being fabricated to self-justify and the politicians are notorious for utilizing these. But sometimes we Christians and Christian leaders, we also take things out of context, even the word of God, and we fabricate things. You see, what we need today, more than just simply revelations, some idea, fresh new idea, some fantasy picture about the future, is truth. Truth is what we need. But truth is oftentimes not that much proclaimed at the pulpit today. Nobody likes to talk about truth so much because truth sometimes hurts. Truth is confrontational. 
Truth causes us to repent. We like soft messages. We like messages that is tingling our ears and provoking our curiosity. But we don't want truth, which causes us to really look deep inside to see whether we are lined up with truth. Truth that will prompt us into action, that will really align everything that's happening all around us into the way of the kingdom of Christ. But Jesus is the truth. And Jesus' spirit is the spirit of truth. And Jesus says, truth is the only way you're going to be set free. I think we, in this world, we are bound or in bondage, shackled to the things of the world because we don't have truth that will set us free. You see, when a soldier, a Roman soldier, he has his belt buckled, everything all intact, man, he's really free now. He's really free to fight the battle. But what if his belt comes loose? Huh? What if his, the leather strap snaps? And what, what if none of the gears are tightly secured to that? He would be so insecure about that. You know? I mean, for me, in the modern day, just wearing a you know, thin strap like this, a belt, I get insecure, you know? I'm wondering, did I put on the belt right? I did more. Did I zip, zipper myself? You know, you know, I mean, you get so insecure about that. But think about a soldier who has everything that he considers to be his gear dependent upon that belt, which will bring it all together and hold them in one piece. Are you in one piece? because you're centered on the truth of Jesus Christ? Do you know what that is? If you are, then you should feel secure that you can enter into the battle with this belt of truth. Second, right after that, he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, what is a breastplate? It is a central gear which protects all vital organs except brain, of course. And we'll talk about the helmet that protects the brain as well. But it's protecting your lungs, your heart, because if they're gone, you're gone. Your heart doesn't beat. You can't breathe properly. You can't function as a soldier. And Jesus says, the breastplate which will protect your central heart and your, your lungs is that of righteousness. And of course, it's those people who are trying to live their life of purity and virtue, proper morality and ethics, life of integrity and truthfulness. Yes, they're going to have confidence. Yes, I agree with that. But I don't think Paul is talking about our self-righteousness. God, I'm such a great Christian. I'm leading such a pure life. And I'm such a godly person. If I go with that, Satan has another weapon to strike at us. But he cannot touch us if we go purely on the righteousness of Christ. Because let me tell you, as I mentioned last week, Satan 
or Diabolus. That's the Hebrew term, that's the Greek term for the devil. It means primarily someone who comes and assaults us with accusation and slander. And he loves doing that. That's exactly what he did regarding Job. If you look at the first two chapters of Job, you'll see that he approaches God, God's throne, and he starts accusing Job. Uh, you think that Job is such a righteous person, but uh, God, you haven't tested him yet. You put a hedge of protection around him, but remove that and give him all kinds of disasters and pain and suffering, and he will disown you. And Satan does that same type of accusation on us Christians today. He accuses us of our unrighteousness, our sins, our failings, our hypocrisy, our unfaithfulness, and all of them are true to a degree. But what Satan doesn't know, or what Satan hasn't come to terms yet, is the fact that it doesn't really matter how lousy we are. It's not about our lousiness. It's about Christ's perfection that covers us. And Christ says, I know you're, you're undependable. You're hypocritical. You fail. You're still sinful. You have all those bondages. You're still bound in those addictions. But it's not because of that. It's because of me. What I've done. I lived a perfect life for you. I, I died a perfect death for you. I did all this for you. And I'll be your covering. I'll stand between you and the enemy. So the breastplate is simply placing Jesus Christ in front of me, to guard me from the onslaught of the enemy. Because the enemy, if we stand with our own righteousness, will continue to accuse us. I mean, just think about a scenario where there is a, a minister or a spiritual leader who is perhaps the most holiest of all men. Just think of a scenario like that. And maybe he is. Maybe he doesn't do the type of sins or get involved in the bondage and addiction type of uh, uh, engage in those kind of activities. Let's say he really is a conscientious-minded, very pure man standing there. And so now he's standing there with his righteousness, his sanctified state, and you know, he's challenging the devil. Don't you think the devil will have something that he can get under and to pierce his heart, stricken his conscience? Of course. You know, we may think of those ministers like, wow, holy, but I don't know of any minister who truly, when they're examining themselves, would feel that confident to stand on their righteousness. I know I cannot. Because whatever righteousness I have, I have unrighteousness right next to it. Whatever good things I've done, there are a lot of things I'm not doing so well. Wonderful accomplishments and sacrifices I made, there's a lot of selfishness and self-indulgence. Satan can always dig up dirt in my life. So you see, I cannot rely on my righteousness at all. Even if it's righteousness, it is not my righteousness. Never. It is the righteousness of Christ that must be our breastplate. Amen? So when we come with that against Satan, he has nothing to say. 
Because he has nothing on Christ. And then Paul says in verse 15, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And he's been consistent with what he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, which quotes Isaiah 52, 7. Let me read you Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So it's feet shod with some kind of shoes. In the first century, uh, Roman military type of outfit, they basically wore sandals. But it's like sandal boots. Have you ever seen sandal boots that comes up to the anchor level? But it was well strapped. And good thing about these sandals, they say, or what they call it, kaligai, kaligai. And these sanders, uh, the, your feet can breathe, basically. You know. But it's very well molded, and they have some samples of this. You might go to a Google search and type it up, and they're very, very well made. And the distinguishing thing about these boots are that at the bottom of the sole, they have all these spikes. They have this uh, so-called hobnails. So that it's like, you know, the athletic shoes that we see like track stars having those spikes or soccer players. And, and these have such grip that they can make their stance and literally stand against their enemies. And at the same time, they're so flexible that that you can pretty much go anywhere, travel long distance through whatever terrains. And I think the closest equivalent to this that I see is those who climb mountains, you know, the walls, those people who are climbing the walls and they're getting the grips and all that. That's the sense that I get. And what is it that gives us the grip? What is it that gives us that grounding? Solidly implanting our feet into the ground so that the enemy cannot push us back. And Apostle Paul says, it's the gospel of peace. And here, first of all, is the peace, peace of mind, this composure, this center state of mind, shalom. But I don't think he's talking about relying upon your state of mind through meditation or uh, releasing of the stress and, and finding that sense of harmony, a sense of oneness. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the gospel. It's the gospel that gives us peace. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing the person, the teaching, the ministry, the redemptive sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that our salvation is only found in Christ, that Christ is opening up his kingdom for us. Everything's about Christ. And if you really know Christ, you know what Christ is about then you will find such a sense of security that you can be grounded and the enemy cannot push you back. And you can traverse for long distance without getting all these blisters and you know, foot problems. 
I know this is true in my life. More and more I come to know Jesus and know the facts about Jesus, what he's about. And basically, you get that information from the four Gospels. You don't need to have heavy theological books. Just read those four Gospels over and over and over again until you really know this person of Jesus Christ. That gives you such a sense of esteem when you're going up against the enemy. Finding this total sense of security in the goodness and the graciousness of God through Jesus Christ. And now you're ready to go. Now you're prepared. So you got the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and the sanders, sandal boots, and you're ready for the battle. Amen? Amen. Amen. But there are more. There are more. He says in verse 16, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. But now here, Paul is not talking about one of the small-sized you know, shields like Captain America has. You know? It's not one of those fancy shields that he can kind of throw at them and do all kinds of you know, fantastic feats. No. This is a very practical shield and oftentimes a body size shield. Okay? And but it's made pretty light because it's basically wood with leather. And the root word for this is similar to that of a door. It's like having a sort of mini sized door. And you're carrying that with you. And why was this important? It was important in their strategy because the Romans were accustomed to the phalanx type of positioning where they line up side by side like this and back to back like that and they would carry these shields. And when the enemies come with, with the charge, they would set the shield and it would block everything. They would have a, literally a castle of shields. And then all they have to do is take out the long you know, spears and the enemies will be pierced as they try to charge against them. So the shield is something that you utilize manually and intentionally to protect yourself and others. And the enemy's tactics, once again, is to shoot all kinds of flaming arrows, like lies, slander, and accusation. And we are to put on the shield of faith. Ultimately, the bottom line is faith. If you lack faith, you're going to make yourself vulnerable. And those flaming darts is going to strike you somewhere. And so you must put on that guard and put that shield to protect yourself, protect your fellow soldiers, protect your family, protect everyone within this boundary. Amen. And then he says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Okay, this is another part of the armory which protects perhaps the most vital of all organs, your brain, your mind. And so if it is the helmet of salvation, it must be referring to the fact that we have received salvation and also that we have assurance in that salvation. You see, I don't think he's saying here, well, I think Paul is saying that these are the people who are saved, so 
Salvation has already been gained, but he realized that there are a lot of people who are not assured of salvation. Because after being saved by grace, they want to go back to the law and to qualify themselves by abiding by the law, doing good deeds. That's going to give them salvation or assurance of salvation. And Paul says no. Assurance of salvation comes because you're totally relied upon Christ on day one, day two, or throughout your life until Jesus comes. You don't start with grace and then convert it to law. But having said that, of course, if you understand the grace, you will try to abide by the law. No doubt about that. I'm not refuting that. But to think that your assurance is going to come because you are a good boy or a good girl, because you've measured up, you are more righteous than ever before, that's not going to work again. Because I told you, Satan is going to throw that flaming dart of accusation and find you those hidden sins. What are you going to do? Who's going to cover that? You have to be saved all over again, washed by the blood of Jesus all over again for that? No. You and I, we are already saved. You and I, we are adopted as children of God. You and I, we are incorporated into the body of Christ. We bear the name of Christ. We're Christians. So Paul must be talking about the lack of assurance of salvation because our minds play games. And I know exactly this because, because right after I got born again in March of 1982, I got born again, radically born again, supernaturally transformed, had one of those Damascus Road type of experience. But for about three months or so, I struggled with my salvation because I, I kept on sinning. I kept on thinking wrong things, saying the wrong things, acting the wrong things. And I said, like, God, save me once again. I used to plead with God to save me every day for about three months. And finally, the Lord showed me from Ephesians chapter 2 where we've covered the fact that we are saved by grace, not works. It is a gift of God, not of our doing, but it's Christ's doing. And that totally liberated me. It was the word that liberated me. And I realized that the devil wanted to play with my mind. This is actually the battlefield of spiritual warfare, friends. And you cannot afford to lose your mind. You must guard that. Clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5, Apostle Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we need to fight this war in our mind. And we need to gain Victory by being assured in Christ. And then finally, in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in the Roman military, there were two types of sword. One was a long sword that's something like six to eight feet long. Okay? 
And with that, one chop, and you can just decapacitate anyone. It's kind of like the medieval sword, long broadswords that the knights would use. But this was so ineffective in battle that the Romans were not known for this long sword, but they were known for this short sword, about one and a half feet long in blade size. And this is the double-edged sword known as Makharia. And this was the sword which was so effective because when they put up the shield and the enemy would penetrate and tries to penetrate the ranks, they would just take this small sword and mm, thrust it into their sides. And so it was very, very effective type of sword. And it had the type of efficiency that the Hebrews writer in chapter 4, 12 talks about. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And by the way, this word is not uh, in Greek, the word logos. The word logos can refer to the scripture. The word logos can be something that is conceptual. But here, the word is rhema, which is the dynamic word that is proclaimed. Often the prophets would proclaim the word rhema. And this is exactly how Jesus himself defeated the devil in the wilderness. When the devil came and tempted him, he kept on saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Three times he used the words from the book of Deuteronomy. And he defended himself, utilizing the word. So first of all, the sword of the word of God is something that discerns the ways of the enemy and is able to parry and wield to defend ourselves. But the purpose of the sword is actually finally thrusted into the enemy. And that is the offensive word. Jesus even used an offensive word. He said, away from me, Satan. And Satan fled, just like that. So in our spiritual warfare, if we really know the word, it is written. It is written. It is written. You know what the word is about. You know what the word guarantees. You know what the promise of God is for you in the word. Then at the end of that, with that word, with that confidence, you can thrust into the heart of the enemy, and say, get away from me. We can be authoritative. And that's how Jesus actually exposed the demon in many cases where people were demonized. They came, and he was able to speak forth the authoritative word of God. And it's like sharp double-edged sword, which would pierce the enemies, and they had to flee. And we can do the same. So today, I know that we went through this whole list of uh, the gears that we must have, which will comprise the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, sandal of peace that comes from the gospel, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. But these are not just for the kids. I know for little children, they can draw the, you know, the armor, they can put on the armor, and they can imagine the armor before us adults, grown-ups. This is a serious business. 
And I just want you to know the seriousness about each of these parts of the armor that you need to be familiar with and understand why Apostle Paul uses the words, describes in such a way to talk about all of these arsenals that we have. First, as a defensive tools, and then secondly, an offensive tool. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.